Get your phone ready, Bill. Okay, just making sure. You're the one that usually has that. What is that sound? When uh, yeah, or the. Choose a language. Yeah. English. Not English. Starting with Spontaneous. French. I already done French. I've done French, I've done German, English, Spanish. Gaelic. Oh, for your reading? Yes. Spanish. Hola. Uh, I got you. Como está usted?
Do you remember their names? No. <laughs> okay. Did you actually formally meet them last week? Yeah, they were here. Yeah. Oh, there's Ken. Did you get me this water? Yeah, it's new, Dad. <laughs> okay. The other one's, the other one's from last it week. It felt cool, and I thought, hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's fresh water. All right. Couple things for Star. Yep. And Doug. Yep, this has been here for quite a while. Yeah. I'll take one too. Hey, ma'am, you're probably going to want another one up here. Yeah. Another one for mom. Yeah, this might be an old one here. Yeah, it is. Did you come in too warmly here? Can you turn the fans on? How do you feel? Feel warm. <laughs> you turn the fans on? Uh, I don't know no. about that. No.
morning. Good to, good to see you all. We've been gone for a couple of weeks. And beautiful morning this morning. Pray that God would bless you for having been here. Welcome to our visitors. Thanks for coming to see us. We hope you are blessed. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 2 Timothy 4.2 um, Again, offerings in the offering box. Um, we're back to that. Andrea's number, Days of Praise, and Acts and Facts are here. Make good use of those. Read them, pass them on, pass them out. That'd be great. All right. Uh, kind of short announcements. Is there anything I missed? I'm fogging up here already. Can't, can't, see, can't see close, can't see far. Yeah, okay. So um, Sheila has purchased a gift for the Roth family, and it is out on the coffee bar, and there's a card laying on it. If you would like to sign that card, uh, you can do so, and also if you'd like to donate um, towards that gift, uh, see Sheila, 3 to $5 would be great. Also, I have a note from um, the Roth family. Uh, no signature here exactly, but I'm thinking that maybe Ashley wrote this. Dear church family, thank you for all of the prayers, thoughts, and love through this difficult time. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. 1 Peter 5.10 This was often said by Brenda, and we know she is rejoicing and praising the Lord. Again, thank you for your love, spiritual support, yummy meals, and thank you for all that you have done for our family. We're blessed, the Roth family. So I'll post that. Also, um, Phil and I spoke it for a moment this morning. Um, you all are aware of Elijah and his story and his, his difficulties. Uh, I'm sorry, what's his last name? Morrissey. Morrissey. Um, it's, um, you, you, as you're following, you can see the frustration of his mother and, and the difficulty that she's having. So not only prayers for him, but prayers for their family and his mom, who's got to kind of go through all that and try to protect her son. So, And then I got a text regarding Ken this morning uh, that he's not feeling well, so uh, we want to remember him as well. So um, let me see what we've got for a scripture reading this morning. Let's do the scripture for meditation. That's Psalm 51, and you can read that in the Pew Bible or um, in the hymnal, but Psalm 51 is page 889 in the, Pew, in the Pew Bible.
Let's stand together and ask the Lord to bless our service. George, would you open for us today? Thanks. you take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 404 404 in the brown Jesus' blood and righteousness, I do. 
needed. Oh, I got a hand even before I asked the question. Mr. Donovan, do you have a favorite hymn this morning? In the brown? Three, nine, eight in the brown. Fill my cup. Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? Amen. And before we even know, we need it. Scripture reading this morning is found in 2 Timothy, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 18. That's 1855 in the Pew Bible. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 18. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, 
correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instructions. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to you, to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia and Titus to Demaltia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Titius to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him, because he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Take your, your red hymnal and turn to number 500. 500 in the Red Trinity.
Our scripture text this morning is 2 Timothy 4. Last Lord's Day, we considered idols of the heart that hinder our worship of God and outreach of the gospel. We discovered that in Ezekiel's day, the elders of Israel were guilty of these secret devotions and caused the people to stumble spiritually. Their fall and their ruin. How? Because the people imbibe this teaching as legitimate. So teachers and pupils alike are guilty of replacing the biblical God for imaginary gods. Idols of the heart. Can't always see those things. We looked at God's call to flee idolatry, both the physical idols of skilled craftsmen and the idols of the heart, which were the inventions of wrong thinking. Both are deadly. Both are damning to the soul. One is outward, the other is inward, where no one can see but God. But both produce the same consequence. Ezekiel 14, verse 8 says, God is speaking, I will set my face against that man and make him an example, and to buy word I will cut him off from my people, and then you will know that I am the Lord. We looked secondly then at subtle idols of the heart. Subtle idols of the heart. The idol of accommodation, the practice of, of adopting the lifestyles, goals, aspirations, methods, practices of the world with the hope of winning the loss. That goes on in too many churches. We'll just adapt. We'll see how close we can get to the world without being in the world. And that will win people. They'll come and they'll see that we're like them. But there's a blasphemy towards God. Jesus said, no, you're to be salt and light to the world. We looked at the idol of independent thinking. The only legitimate thought for believers is the thought held captive to Christ's thinking. And that's not a mystery because we know what Christ is thinking because we have his word. We're to work towards agreement and unity to be of one mind. Paul talks about that to the Corinthians because they were divisive. We also talked about the idol of self-interest and self-satisfaction. We're to work for the good and the edification of others. And that will mean sacrificing our own will at times. Love for the brethren is basic to this. The example we saw was in the type of Christ, the indelible mark and stamp portraying Christ to a world which tries to squeeze us into its own sinful mold. Paul resists that, says to resist that in Romans 12. Now in today's study, I want to begin to look at those elements of worship which are essential according to God's own instruction. What are the essential elements for worship. And as we come to our study, let's seek for God's enablement. 
Holy Father, we ask this morning that you will send forth your spirit to teach us and instruct us in what you have commanded concerning worship. Too many times our worship is of our own thoughts and our own doing. Never dawned on us to ask you what you would prefer in worship, what you hate about worship, the worship of men. So give us your wisdom today from your scriptures. You're not silent. That's not the problem. We have just not been alert and active in searching out some of these truths. So help us to do so, to begin to do so at least today. Bless our people that aren't here today. I know of a number that are sick. Raise them up according to your will. Bless them in their homes. Use the radio ministry as a source of encouragement. This we ask for your glory and our good. Amen. We're looking today at the essentials of biblical worship. And I'm wording it this way, elements versus circumstances. Several years ago, we dealt with the two predominant philosophies of worship. The regulative principle, which states only what is prescribed in Scripture may be incorporated into our worship of God. That's one principle that churches follow. And others follow what is called the normative principle. The normative principle says, if God does not prohibit something, then we may include it in worship. Well, what do you think about that? The regulative principle relies on what the scriptures have taught. The normative principle relies upon the silence of scripture, believing that anything is permissible if there's no specific prohibition. In other words, it interprets silence as a green light to go ahead and proceed. We learn that the normative principle is too, too broad. It's like saying that God has been silent about what he will accept as worship, and we may use his silence to invent our own styles of worship and all the accoutrements that go with it. And my, do we not see that in many, many churches today. We discovered, however, that whether adding to worship what God did not command, remember the story of the unauthorized fire of Nadab and Abihu, struck dead by God. Or subtracting from worship what God required, remember Uzzah, disregard of God's prohibition that no one was to touch the ark. God dealt with these human inventions to worship in a most severe way. Nothing changed when we come to the New Testament. 
people think, oh, well, the God of the Old Testament, yeah, he was stern and harsh, judgmental, scary. But the God of the New Testament, he's a nice guy. He's easy to get along with. He looks the other way concerning a lot of things. More amiable. Is that true? Do we not remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? New Testament? In all of this, we discover that the silence of Scripture, the silence of Scripture is not a safe green light to proceed with worshiping God. The only safe and acceptable guide is to follow the book. So read and obey what God has listed as the essential elements that must be part of true and approved worship of God. That makes us students of the word, or it should, Over against the essentials of worship, the elements, there are the circumstances of worship. By that I mean the functional aspects that enable worship to, to occur. What are they? Well, place to meet, and not necessarily a church building. I can tell you right now there are Christians throughout the world today that aren't meeting to worship in a church building. They're sitting in the forest somewhere on wet moss, hiding from the authorities so they can practice their faith. But there are, the circ- those, there are different circumstances of worship. There are the functional aspects of worship that enable worship to occur. Place to meet, not necessarily a church building, place to sit, not necessarily a pew, musical instruments, hymnals, computers, sound amplification, central heating, that varies from country to country, right? The political climate, hmm. geography, weather. What's the principle? All circumstances must facilitate and serve the elements of worship, which are the essentials. The circumstances may not take over and drown out the essentials. We can be flexible on the circumstances for worship, which vary. But we must be firm on the essentials. The premise, what is it? If we learn and know the essentials the circumstances of worship will resolve themselves. I remember one Sunday evening here at Thornville when I was preaching, and there was a terrible and ferocious thunderstorm raging outside. The wind was howling. The tree limbs were actually falling, crashing against the building, falling in this driveway over here. You couldn't drive out at night. It was a terrible storm. Suddenly, the electricity was gone. The lights went out. And we were sitting here in the dark. 
Now, we could have closed the service and gone home. But having electric lights, having an amplifier to run the uh, microphone are not essential to preaching or to listening to the preaching of God's word for that matter. I only needed a light source to see my notes, to read the Bible. So someone fetched a flashlight from their car. Remember that? And I just continued on. <laughs> so I held, held the flashlight like this so I could read my notes. And no one needs light to hear gospel preaching, so the congregation just sat in the dark and listened, and I taught. The essential of worship, preaching and hearing God's word, that was maintained. While the circumstances of worship, electric lights in the auditorium, was altered by improvising, uh, improvising with a flashlight. What's the principle? The principle is this. We're firm on the elements of worship. We're flexible on the circumstances of worship. This is how Christians survived the genocide and the persecution of the Roman Empire. Where did they worship? Well, I'll tell you it wasn't in church buildings. They were down in the sewers of Rome, in the catacombs. So who, you're going to sit in the sewers? That's what they did. No Roman soldier was going to be running around down in the sewers. During the purges of the Chinese government under Mao, the Christians of China stopped worshiping in church buildings, but they didn't stop worshiping. They worshiped in their houses. They were worshiped in underground situations. The essential was worship. Where they did it was not essential. What are some of the essentials? Well, the essential of public prayer. By the time of the Supreme Court ban on Bible reading in schools in uh, 1963, under the atheist lawsuit by Madeline Murray O'Hare, a decision one year earlier, banning prayer had already been in place. But neither the ban on prayer nor the ban on Bible reading in public schools forbade the private prayer of students, nor carrying and reading the Bible by students, although in recent years school administrators have not always understood that law. And they may have harassed students who carry or read their Bibles in school. It's illegal to do that. The goal of these two rulings was and is to eradicate any and all public display of faith through prayer and the reading of the scriptures. Other incidents have involved the removal of crosses from public land used as memorials to fallen soldiers or attempts so far to ban prayer used to open certain days of Congress, though in recent court ruling has approved opening prayers for public meetings. 
Much of the rhetoric in these cases centers around personal religious beliefs and practices. Why the need to pray in public? Can't you be satisfied to pray at home or silently in your mind? Children in school are permitted to do that, we are told. We would not deny that, yes, we can pray in private. And yes, we can read our Bible in the seclusion of our own homes. We know that. But when it comes to public worship, God intends that his people vocalize their praise their petitions, their thanksgivings, and the like to him within the public arena. For example, in 1 Kings 8, at the dedication of the temple, Solomon postulated before God a number of consequences of conduct that would require Israel to pray as a nation. Let me read some of these. Solomon says, Hear the supplication of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray towards this place. He's talking about the temple. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. His neighbor, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants. Condemn the guilty. Bring down what he has done. Declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. 1 Kings 8, verse 30 and following. Or again, 1 Kings 8, verse 33. When your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they've sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land that you gave to their fathers. 1 Kings 8, Verse 33 and 34. Again, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because your people have sinned against you and when they pray towards this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Then teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people for an inheritance. First Kings 8, verse 35, verse 36. And in verse 37, he mentions famine and plagues. In verse 39, personal sin. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart. For you alone know the hearts of all men. Verse 41 refers to the foreigner showing up at the door who doesn't know God, but has heard of God's reputation there, even these prayers, Solomon requests God to answer so that his name would be magnified throughout all the nations. And we read, when Solomon had finished all these prayers and supplications to the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had been kneeling with his hands spread out towards heaven, he stood and he blessed the whole assembly of Israel in a loud voice, saying, Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel, just as he promised. 
Not one word has failed in all of his good promises that he gave through his servant Moses. 1 Kings 8, verse 54 and 56. After 14 days of animal sacrifices in the worship of God, we read on the following day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and they all went home joyful and glad in heart for all the good things the Lord had done for his servant David and his people Israel. 1 Kings 8, verse 66. And then in Moses' concluding address, to Israel before they were about to enter the land of Canaan. He summoned up the special privilege of prayer Israel enjoyed before God, saying, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I am setting before you today. Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 and 8. And of course, the implied answer to those questions is there's no other nation like that but God's people. You know, many people pray. Some pray when they're in trouble. They can't figure out how to rectify their predicament. Some pray when they find themselves deprived financially and they need help. Some pray for good health, for a new job, for a peaceful environment, for their family, for their community. When we hear of rioting in certain cities of our own country, I, I pray for that. I, I'm more conscious of things like that when I see that going on. God answers these prayers if, along with these requests, there is repentance and contrition for sinning against him. But where those things are missing, God has determined, if you had responded to my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. But since you rejected me when I called... And no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand. Since you ignored all my advice and will not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your distress. I will mock when calamity overtakes you, when calamity overtakes you like a storm, when disaster sweeps over you like a whirlwind, when distress and trouble overwhelm you. Then they will call to me, but I will not answer. They will look for me, but they will not find me. Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord, since they would not accept my advice and spurned my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Proverbs 1, verses 23 and following. Did you ever see anything like that in Scripture? But there it is in black and white. God expects us to be people of the Word, to be listening and obeying His Word. 
And if we choose not to, he's basically going on record as saying, don't expect me to be there when you need me. If my word and my teaching is not sufficient for everyday life to be your guide by way of the Holy Spirit teaching you, then when you get in trouble and you cry out to me, no, yeah, now you're desperate, it isn't always going to be true that I'm there for you. Now, if we repent, yes. But lots of times we cry out, and there's no repentance. We're just hurting. So we say, okay, I'll go to God, and he'll help my hurt. He'll remove it. We kind of use God as a Band-Aid. What are some of the characteristics of public prayer? Well, number one... Public prayer confesses both public and private sin. We saw some of this in Solomon's prayer of dedication for the newly constructed temple, but all of his references here were in the future. When a man wrongs his neighbor, when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy, and so on and so on. That's the way he prays. Knowing the history of Israel and their propensity to dis- disobey God, Solomon is not in error to postulate such things. But what is more comforting to us as sin sinners is to show and be able to know that when we pray collectively in repentance, God has a history of responding favorably. The people's prayer in Nehemiah comes to mind. After the rebuild of the wall around Jerusalem was completed, the people told Ezra the scribe to read from the book of the law. And we read, He read it out loud from daybreak till noon in the presence of the men, women, and others who could attend and listen. All the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for that occasion And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Nehemiah 8, verse 1 and 5. This was the public reading of the scriptures. I want you to notice the effect it had upon the people who were glued to every word as Ezra read. In the very next chapter, Nehemiah 9, 23 days later, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all the foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were, and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Nehemiah 9, verses 1 and following. Wow. Half the day spent in worship. Half in confessing their sin. A quarter of the day confessing their sins and a quarter in worshiping God. So half a day. 
The sincerity of this public prayer is found in chapter 9, verse 38. It's under conviction of what they heard. It says, in view of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and all our priests are affixing their seals to it. Okay, what were some of the details of this binding agreement? Nehemiah 10, verse 30. We promise, here's some of the, here's some of the agreements. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the people around us or take their daughters for our sons. Hmm. We promise no intermarriage with unbelievers. They go on. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Wow. They go on. Every seventh year we will forego working the land. We will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set on the table, the show table. For the regular grain offerings and the burnt offerings. For the offerings on the Sabbath, new moon, festivals, appointed feasts. For the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. They're pledging their money to support God's work. We, they go on, we, the priests, the Levites, the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood. To burn on the altar of the Lord our God. Well, where'd you think they're going to get their wood at the temple? The people had to bring it. So they, they commit to this. Wood, to burn at the altar of our Lord, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle and of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storehouses of the house of our God, to the priests and the first of fruits of our ground meal, to our grain offerings of the fruit of all our trees and of all of our wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithe in all the towns where we work. Nehemiah 10, verse 30 and following. Brethren, this is nothing short of revival breaking out in Israel. They weren't doing this before. Now, they knew they should have been, but they weren't. And all because the people attentively listened to Ezra reading the scriptures to them, and then they, under conviction for their failures and sins, fasted and prayed, in confession before God. They saw an error and they went about to correct it. You know sometimes on Wednesday night prayer meeting. 
Sad to say we have four or five people here to pray. Four or five people. What might God do for our church if all the able-bodied showed up to pray? God is looking for genuineness in our faith. And this first characteristic of public prayer, the confession of both public and private sin, is the best starting point. Whatever else Israel did in obedience to the law, sacrificing burnt offerings, observing holding days, burning of incense, God protested, saying, Stop bringing meaningless offerings that I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your appointed feasts. And when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. And even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Oh, wow. What's the problem? He tells them, your hands are full of blood. Wash, make yourselves, and that's yourselves is plural, Make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. And by the way, Ezra's generation did. They repented. And they cleaned up their act. You can read about it in Isaiah chapter 1. So let us do the same, that God may hear from heaven and come near to our need. Public prayer confesses both public and and private sin. Secondly, public prayer praises God for who he is and for what he has done. If you will return to Nehemiah 9, you can read in the people's prayer the thoughts they express to God on that occasion, Nehemiah 9. For example, verse 5 and following. Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessings and praise. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens. Verse 6, the earth and all that is in it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and named him Abraham, father of many. Not just of the Jews, you see, but of all who are of the saving faith of Abraham. Galatians 3, 7. Verse 9. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through on dry ground, but hurled their pursuers into the depths. Verse 13. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, decrees and commands that are good. Verse 15. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought water from the rock. These are all public prayers. And in all these public prayers, these people are rehearsing and reminding themselves of God's mercy and grace showed to them. They even mentioned their rebellion and their stiff-necked disobedience to God's commands, but in doing so, it's to remind themselves, but you are a forgiving God. 
gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Verse 17. How much more appropriate in our public prayers to remind ourselves of the spiritual significance of these things. Are we not Abraham's spiritual children? And so heirs of God's promise to him? We are. Scripture says it is not the natural children. I'm reading scripture now. It is not the natural children who are God's children. But it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. Do you ever think that would be found in the Bible? But there it is. It isn't the physical Jews that are Abraham's children. It's the believers, you and me. Romans 9, verse 8. Or again, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 28 and 29. We have to change our thinking when we move from Old Testament to New. We're used to saying, well, the Jews are Abraham's seed. They're his people. And Paul said, no, no. (laughs) Those who are in Christ are Abraham's seed. When Israel ate of the manna from heaven, Jesus explained the truth of it, saying this. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. Pretty strong statement, isn't it? It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. John 6, 32 and 33. When Israel drank of the water from the rock, Paul says they all ate the same spiritual food and they drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 3 and 4. Ezra's audience did not know that, but we know it. If they remembered and praised God for his physical sustenance in the wilderness, ought not we to pray with praise to God for sustaining us through the wilderness of sin and enabling us to ingest the water, Jesus, the living water, which will become in believers a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 4, verse 14. And then finally, public prayer summons God's blessings and guidance on political issues of the day. Boy, we need that today, don't we? In writing to Timothy about the biblical protocol for worship, Paul says, I urge then... First of all, 
their requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, the first four verses. There you have it. God says, Paul says, it's God's will that we pray for those in authority, for those that govern us. Oh, and by the way, who was governing Paul when he wrote that? If you know your history, it was Nero, the, one of the bloodiest Caesars Rome ever produced. Butchered Christians for the fun of it. Illuminated his garden by putting Christians on crosses and pitching them with black tar and setting them on fire. Gives me the willies. Not only are we to submit to the powers that be because they can make us very miserable if we become anarchists, Romans 13, but we're to pray for our leaders that it may go well with us as believers. Notice how prayerful people become in time of trouble. You ever notice that? Boy, they, you don't have to tell them to pray. Let me say that God's people need to pray before the trouble. We need to pray to avert the trouble. What good can praying do? Let me read it for you. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a watercourse wherever he pleases. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Ezra's acknowledgement. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put it in the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and I gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. Ezra 7, verse 27 and 28. Nehemiah's account of himself was nearly identical. He says, the king said to me, what, what is it that you want, Nehemiah? And then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. I like that. He just took a few moments of silent prayer before he answered the king. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Nehemiah 2 verse 4 and 5. I think it was a shame and a disgrace that Christians did not go to the polls to vote in the last election. 
It's even a greater travesty that we do not pray for the people who rule over us. Not in any way excusing their sinful decisions, but acknowledging that like the master over the slave, you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Ephesians 6 verse 9. You remember it was as the church gathered in the house of John Mark to pray that Peter escaped miraculously from prison and was spared Herod's intended execution. You can read about it in Acts 12. God's praying people were responsible for the release of Miriam Imbrain, a Sudanese Christian woman who refused to recant her faith on threat of execution by the Muslim authorities. Do you remember that years ago? And our church, as well as others, were praying for her. She, her husband, her baby, were rescued and became safe because God's people held a prayer vigil for her. We were part of that. So my question, what more might God do for us if we became dedicated to public prayer? We only have five people show up on Wednesday night to pray. I think that's disgraceful. Say, well, I can pray at home. I know that. Everybody knows that. But there's something about the public prayer, the gathering of God's people, one voice before God. Solomon says, when people pray towards this temple, you hear from heaven and answer Hear from heaven and answer. The collective mind of God's people has merit before God. Oh, a whole group is praying for the same thing. Praise the Lord. Our Father, make us a praying people. Yes, not just at home, not in our private devotions alone, but when we have corporate prayer. It's mighty to see how you interacted with Israel when they came together as a nation and prayed for you to intercede on their behalf. And even if they did pray during times of trouble, where else are we going to go in times of trouble? There are things that come our way that just, they're beyond us. We can be the biggest fixers ever in terms of how we normally handle life. But we ought to be obedient to God's word first and foremost. And any fix ought to come with the acknowledgement that God alone is the one to be governing our lives. And he does so through his word and We need to be people of prayer and people of the scriptures to have your direction for life and living. Help us with that, Lord. Relieve us from this independent spirit that seems to have consumed America. Everybody's a law unto themselves. They're going to do their own thing, and nobody's going to tell me what to do or where to go or how to dress or what to eat, or any of this. 
And they bring that into all of life. And God is pushed out of life. Because God doesn't come to us and say, please, listen to me, please, I beg you. No, God commands us. And there is that part of our heart that doesn't like commands. We don't like being told what to do. Even if it's our God that's telling us to do it. But Lord, you judged your people Israel when they disobeyed your law. When they did their own thing. And we need to avert that in our day. We want to be on your right side. And we want to see God by your Holy Spirit moving among us to accomplish your will. In godly living for ourselves, missionary outreach with the gospel, the salvation of our children and our neighbors and friends. Please, Lord, bless us with your presence. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. From Trinity Hymnal, the Red Hymnal, our closing hymn is 32. stand as we sing.
Lord, that hymn reminds me of what Paul said in the scriptures concerning faithfulness, which was this, even if I am unfaithful, thou art faithful. Right? That's our God. If the faithfulness of God depended upon our faithfulness, we would be lost. We would be lost. That's what all the work religions of the world do not understand. It's grace. God's grace. It's his faithfulness that raises us up and sets us firmly on the rock of our salvation. I pray you're trusting him today, and if not, you can trust him through prayer. Ask the Lord to save you and to grant you the faith that's necessary unto life. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is the sword of the Spirit. It cuts us at times. It really humbles us and brings us low. It deals with our pride. It keeps us in remembrance as to who's the Savior and who isn't. I pray that that will always be the case that we will ever be those who drink from the water of life, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not our goodness, but it's his goodness. It's his grace. It's his cross. It's his shed blood that sets us firmly into the kingdom of God. And he came by your appointment on purpose to do all of these things. Help us to respond to right and to live for him, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are dismissed.